Welcome to the presentation of the publication Migration, Integration and Diaspora Engagement in the Caribbean by the Inter-American Development Bank and the Migration Policy Institute. This event will be held in English, but you can access the Spanish translation by clicking on the interpretation button at the bottom of your screen. Today, we will share some findings of the report on, and discuss the challenges and opportunities of migration for the Caribbean. We invite you to leave your comments and questions through the chat, and we will be answering them after the presentations. Today, we have with us Valerie Lacarte, Senior Policy Analyst at the Migration Policy Institute, Felipe Munoz, Chief of the Migration, of the migration Unit at the IDB, Dr. Ralph Henry, Chairman of Kerry Consultants, and Andrew Seeley, President of the Migration Policy Institute. To begin, I would like to invite Felipe Munoz, Head of the Migration Unit at the IDB, to take the floor. Welcome, Felipe. Good morning, and thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Felipe Munoz. I'm the Migration Unit Chief at the American Development Bank. And I want to welcome you to the presentation of this publication, which, which presents a general review of the migration policy and institution in the Caribbean, in particular, analyzing Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, Dominican Republic, Guyana, Haiti, Jamaica, Suriname, and Trinidad and Tobago, and some aspects related to other countries in the greater Caribbean. I want to welcome as well Valerie Lacarda and Andrew Seal, the president of the Migration Policy Institute, who have been partners, great partners in producing this document and in many other projects. Dear Andrew, it's an honor to have you as, as partners. Thank you very much, Dr. Ralph Henry, for joining us today. As Matias said, he's an expert from and on the Caribbean. He's chairman of Kerry Consultants, a consulting firm based in Trinidad and Tobago but also he was a senior lecturer at the University of the West Indies. We are glad to have you today. And I want to acknowledge Valerie Lacarte, Jordi Amaral, and Diego Chavez Gonzalez from MPI, and also Ana Maria Saiz and Jeremy Harris from the Migration Unit of the IDB, who have co-authored this document. As you know, Latin American and the Caribbean and experienced some of history's most significant migratory movements. We are no longer just seeing a region dominated by the migration to high-income countries, mainly Europe of the United States. Intra-regional migration is the most significant feature of regional flows, but in the Caribbean with a specific and particular characteristics. In contrast to countries in Latin America, where we have seen this change happen over the last five years especially, the shift in the Caribbean has been going on gradually over the past few decades. Among many other reasons, and in part due to climate change, natural disasters, and shifts in global mobility patterns, the migration landscape in the Caribbean has changed substantially. This requires an special focus to target the critical challenge of migration in this region, but at the same time, take advantage of the opportunities that immigration and immigration presents. We at the IDB strongly believe that with correct tools, policy and resources, migration can be a strong driver for the development of countries of the region and a pathway to improve the lives of our people. To support therefore the migration unit provide financial resources, technical cooperation and data and knowledge such as the report that we are presenting today. Although this is our first comprehensive look at the migration in the Caribbean, we have already been learning about the issue in the Caribbean. For the past few years, 
we have been working on several publications to understand better some of the knowledge debates about migration in this specific geographic area. And as a brief introduction, let me share some findings from other studies that we have carried out in the migration unit regarding the Caribbean migratory features. First, we study the legislation and legal regimes, regimes for migration in Latin America and the Caribbean last year, led by the, the Professor Diego Acosta and Jeremy Harris. From that report, we see that this, despite the recent change in migration that we are going to address today, most migration laws in the Caribbean date back to the middle of the 20th century, when the flows were different, hence these regulations do not have migrant rights and benefits as the primary focus. Second, and it's the rest of Latin American region, we are seeing a wave of regularization process. In the Caribbean, some countries such as Belize, Dominican Republic, and Trinidad and Tobago, to name a few, have also carried out extraordinary regularization process of a specific migrant populations in their land. Third, regarding labor migration, the CARICOM Skilled Worker Mobility Scheme is one of the most significant in the region, enable notable flows of skilled workers to move within the Caribbean. In general thought, compared to other parts of the Latin American region, governance and access to labor markets are often left to the government's discretion rather than codified into laws with a specific eligibility criteria. Additionally, we carry out regular analysis of remittances in the region. And contrary to popular belief, not all Caribbean countries rely heavily on remittances. Flows are equivalent to around 20% of the GDP, for example, in Haiti or Jamaica, only around 8% in, in the Dominican Republic or Suriname, and less than 1% in Trinidad and Tobago. Our latest data showed that remittances to the Caribbean fell slightly in 2022 due to declines in the Dominican Republic and Jamaica. And despite these remittances remain well above 2020 levels, and many countries have doubled the value of remittances they received in the last six years. Also, we recently launched research on the representation of migrants in census and household service in the region. We find that when it comes to migration statistics in the Caribbean, households and labor force surveys are infrequent and provide little or no identification on migrants, making it challenging to monitor migrant integration into the economies and society in the region. Lastly, and Valerie will address this in her presentation, diaspora is significant when compared to the population, local population. Just counting those birds, the number of people living abroad exceeds 15% in nearly all countries analyzed, but is more often around 40% or 50% as large as the domestic population. Even if you also count the descendants of these immigrants, this proportion are even more prominent. The diaspora can be a critical resource for development if adequately engaged. You can find all this information in our website. And also we work with support, with financial support to the countries. We have worked in so many of the countries just to name few examples in Belize. For example, we are working helping the government to provide quality education for migrant children to technology. Some of the migrant children don't speak English, for example, in Belize. Or in Dominican Republic, we are financing a waste management program that will improve the lives of both migrants and Dominicans. And we are also supporting the government with the census of, for migrants of migrants in 2024. Wrapping up, migration is changing the landscape of our region, especially in the Caribbean. With that, we hope you find this document 
helpful in approaches the realities of migration in the Caribbean, but especially as an input to nurture the debate and the design of policies that help improve its lives in the region. We at the IDB are with partners like MPI, we have the tools to work with governments facing these challenges. Now I want to introduce Dr. Barry Lacart, one of these publication co-authors and who will share with you some of its key findings. Valerie is a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute, where she contributes to research design and conduct data analysis on a range of issues, such as including native immigrant gaps in socioeconomic outcomes and access to public benefits for vulnerable immigration population, among many others. Dr. Lacard earned a PhD in economics from American University. Valerie, thank you very much, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Felipe, and thank you to everyone who's joining in today to listen to our um, conversation. I'm going to present the highlights of this uh, report. And before I jump in, I want to make sure to acknowledge and thank my uh, co-authors, Jordi, Diego, Ana Maria, and Jeremy. So this uh, report describes the Caribbean migration um, using different perspectives. We look at immigrants living in the Caribbean. We look at intra-regional migration and also Caribbean migrants living abroad. Now, uh, we essentially relied on desk research uh, using a lot of the resources that were already available in the Caribbean and, and amongst um, organizations that study the region. But I should also say that uh, it was very important for us to speak to Caribbean stakeholders and to experts that are based in the Caribbean. And I thank them all very much for participating in expert interviews. Uh, the data is that I'm going to present, most of it is from 2020. And as you know, migration policy evolves very quickly. Uh, the good news is that the, the report contains a wealth of information and references for those who want to keep up to date. There are nine primary countries of study. They are Belize, the Bahamas, Barbados, Dominican Republic, Guyana, Haiti, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, and Suriname. We do cover other countries in the greater Caribbean as relevant in the uh, report. The report in itself has about eight sections. One looks at migration data. There are two uh, describing the institutional framework around migration. Uh, we do look at a set of cross-cutting issues, including climate change and immigrant integration. And uh, the concluding sections look forward, uh, including the question of diaspora involvement and um, a set of recommendations. I'm going to talk a little bit about the data. In 2020, there were over 1.6 million immigrants who were living in the nine primary countries of study. Most of them, 63%, were intra-regional, meaning that they were from the Caribbean. And the top countries of origin were Haiti, Guyana, Jamaica, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Grenada, and Cuba. And uh, as for extra-regional migration, they came primarily from Venezuela, 
the United States, China, and the UK. And so looking at all immigrants, the top uh, flows or the largest uh, flows of migrants came from Haiti and, and Venezuela. So looking at Haitians, uh, they made up 53% of all immigrants in the nine primary countries. A little under 500,000 lived in the Dominican Republic, another 30,000 in the Bahamas. And we know that the major push factor um, of um, migrants from Haiti has been the earthquake of 2010 and the ongoing insecurity um, in the country. Venezuelans made up another 17% of all immigrants. 115,000 of them lived in the Dominican Republic. Another 24,000 in Trinidad and Tobago, 23,000 in Guyana. And um, again, here are the push factors are mostly from, um, there have been a flow of Venezuelans since the 2014 political um, turmoil and ongoing um, situation uh, in terms of economic uh, consequences as well. And so not surprisingly, the Dominican Republic uh, hosts by far the largest immigrant population. Um, it's about 675,000, at least in 2020. And that is far greater than the rest of the islands like Trinidad and Tobago, the Bahamas and Belize uh, are the next three. And then smaller populations in the other um, primary countries. But as we know, in the Caribbean, it's very important to think about scale. And so what do these immigrant populations represent as a total share of the population or as a share of the total population, excuse me. And here is another way to look at it and it, it changes a little bit the perspective. So in terms of the share of immigrant population, it varies from 1% or less than 1% in Jamaica and Haiti. And it's as high as 15% and 16% in Belize and the Bahamas. So what that means is you know, that yes, the Dominican Republic has the largest immigrant population, but as a share of their total population, it represents 6%. And so we can, uh, in the next time, I'm going to uh, focus a little more on Belize and the Bahamas that have relatively high shares of immigrants. Uh, the Bahamas, uh, the Bahamas immigrant population is uh, fairly mixed in the sense that at least 60% are from Haiti and Jamaica, so they're intra-regional. But in the top five countries of origin, you will also find people from the United States, from the UK, and from Canada. The immigrant population in Belize looks a little bit different. First of all, Belize is the, is the country out of the nine primary that we studied that had the smallest share of Caribbean migrants, that is, of course, linked to the fact that it's in Central America, but it was still under 1% of their um, immigrant population was Caribbean. And so the top five Caribbean, the, the top five countries of origin of immigrants in Belize are Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, uh, the United States, and Mexico. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit about the institutional framework. The report, um, in the report, we reviewed a set of instruments and mechanisms that govern regional mobility. We looked, of course, at national institutions like agencies and ministries that are tasked with, um, with uh, immigration. We have, we looked at international conventions, regional agreements, temporary labor migration agreements, um, educational migration, especially the model of the, of the University of West Indies. We looked at agreements around the mobility of healthcare professionals and paths to permanency. Now, since all, prime, all of the primary countries except for the Dominican Republic are members of CARICOM, I'm going to spend a few slides on, on the Caribbean community. Now, CARICOM, since its inception, has established free mobility regimes or, um, and developed them always in the goal of increasing regional integration amongst the, its, its now 15 member states. And one of the most important uh, mobility regimes is the CARICOM Single Market and Economy, the CSME. The CSME includes a provision of six months visa-free stays in other member states. Now, the Bahamas is not a member of the CSME, and so it does not receive um, recipients of, um, like you can't go in the Bahamas using the six month visa free stay, even if you're another member state of CARICOM. And uh, the implementation is not yet complete in Belize and in, Haiti, and, and in Haiti. Another, uh, another point to note is that there is no work authorization with that six month visa free stay. And it may be restricted by countries due to national security concerns, or if a CARICOM national could be deemed um, a charge on the public funds. So that means it results in essentially uneven implementation across countries and specifically certain nationalities um, ease of movement is, uh, let's say, it varies across the region. Now, based on the most recent data that we could find on, from 2017, the countries that, were, that received the highest inflows of nationals from other CSME member states were Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana, Antigua and Barbuda, and Jamaica. Another note on the CSME are the skill certificates. So there are specific categories of workers that can get a certificate, which allows them free movement and work authorization. The original categories of workers were more geared towards high-skilled workers. So it was university graduates, artists, musicians, media workers, and sports persons. But the newer categories are geared towards different sets of skills, uh, some are not yet in practice, like agricultural workers and security guards, but um, this is a sign that these, um, mo these labor mobility agreements or the skill certificates could um, generate more inclusive 
um, movement of labor. Other regional agreements with mobility provisions that should be mentioned include CICA, the Central American Integration System, because both Belize and the Dominican Republic are members of CICA. Uh, however, they do not, um, the um, free mobility provision, the CA4, uh, does not, is limited to four Central American countries. So it's, it's uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. And so Belize and the Dominican Republic do not partake in that. And uh, there is also importantly the OECS, all of the members of the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States are also members of CARICOM and they have their own economic union that um, includes free movement, including the work authorization amongst the OECS member states. A few words on refugee status. Now, throughout the region, there are a few institutions or regulations for humanitarian protection, but uh, there is demand uh, the, for protection. That, that seems significant. So in 2020, um, there were 3,000 refugees uh, as recognized under the UNHCR mandate that were resettled in Trinidad and Tobago. And this is a lot because in comparison in the other eight primary countries, uh, they had less than 200 refugees um, in that same year. Now, most refugees were from Venezuela and followed by Cuba. And we should also note that Trinidad and Tobago also had the highest number of asylum seekers followed by Suriname and Belize. Ultimately though, it really is the national institutions that are tasked with implementing all these mobility provisions, whether it be the international commitments uh, on humanitarian protection or the regional or multilateral agreements. Uh, in order to have implementation, there needs to be you know, change of laws, codification, et cetera. And that happens at the national level. But there are challenges with this throughout the region. Uh, some are administrative, uh, the amount of information and of synchronization of, of that information requires a modernization of government systems in some countries. There are limited financial resources to undertake these implementations. Um, also limited staff capacity. In some cases, frankly, there's a lack of political will or they may be depending on when there's a change of government. Um, and there are also issues around, um, in some countries around public perception of migrants. As I also mentioned, we had looked at, we the report considers cross-cutting issues. One of these cross-cutting issues that came up in all of our interviews is the issue of climate change and natural disasters and how it, and how it has led to significant displacement. Uh, the fact that the Caribbean region is one of the world regions with the most, uh, that is the most affected by climate change and that is most likely to continue, uh, there was 
serious concern in all of our interviews and, and of course in the literature around what that means for the region. So here I'm, I'm just going to show two examples of regional, of how the region responded to climate migrants in recent years. So of course there's the devastating earthquake in 2010 in Haiti. Um, the Dominican Republic uh, extended special protection and humanitarian visas, uh, not just for the people that it helped immediately in the aftermath, but also their families that were visiting. Uh, and uh, it suspended deportations for a time, for some time, and so did other countries like the Bahamas, Jamaica, and Turks and Caicos. Dominica extended uh, Haitians stay in the country automatically for six months, regardless of their immigration status. Now, Dominica itself, seven years later, was hit by Hurricane Maria, which, which had devastating consequences on its uh, infrastructure. And there are a set of countries like Trinidad and Tobago, Antigua and Barbuda, Grenada, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines that um, use the CSME six month stay to ease um, the displacement or to accept Dominicans uh, in the midst of that crisis. So there's a mix, there was a mix of using, excuse me, using existing frameworks and developing uh, new measures to respond to the, to the displacement crisis. Immigrant integration also features in this report. Um, we looked at regularization measures to grant status to irregular migrants, the question of access to education and to health for migrants. Here, the main highlight is that there are gaps in between policy and practice, and especially in terms of a differentiated access for uh, those who have an irregular status. And we looked at social cohesion, uh, questions around the host community's concerns of unemployment, jobs, and um, class or ethnic-based discrimination towards migrants. So looking forward, uh, the I haven't spoken much in this presentation on um, the diaspora, but it, there's an, a section dedicated to this in the report. And it's clear that migration um, to the US, to Canada, to the UK uh, mainly has been in, historically important and it will continue to be. And the diaspora plays a key role in the region's development. Uh, the report provides data for all of the primary countries on where their diasporas live and on remittances. Uh, in 2020, for instance, the top receivers of remittances were Jamaica, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic. And remittances beyond their role, their important role um, in the domestic economies, so in terms of host, uh, household consumption, investment, et cetera, remittances are not the only way that the diaspora engaged with, the, um, with their countries of origin. Uh, and so this section talks about diaspora engagement through entrepreneurship, promotion of knowledge and technological transfer, and opening export markets. The report concludes with 11 recommendations that I can summarize in these six uh, topics. 
Some of the recommendations are geared towards improving regional co cooperation on migrant mobility by building on existing regional mechanisms, which as we've discussed, there are plenty. Um, also strengthening national institutions capacity for migration governance, strengthening the immigration research capacity of Caribbean institutions, particularly educational institutions. There are recommendations towards investing in infrastructure, transport, travel networks, and importantly, in resilience to climate change and um, helping governments foster an environment that is conducive to diaspora engagement beyond the remittances. So I want to thank you all for your attention today. Uh, we, the report is available online. You have the link right here and you also have my contact information. Uh, I am going to now turn it over to, um, to uh, Dr. Ralph Henry. Dr. Henry is uh, chairman of Kyrie, of Kyrie Consultants, uh, which is a consulting firm based in Trinidad and Tobago, and has operated over the years in the Caribbean. And for decades, he has consulted in the areas of development economics, economic planning, industrial policy and labor economics. He has written critical reports that serve for policy formulation and, of governments and institutions. Dr. Henry was a senior lecturer at the University of West Indies in the 1980s and 1990s. And uh, prior to joining UWE, uh, he had also worked in the public sector, including as an economist in the ministries of education, planning and development, and of labor in the government of Trinidad and Tobago. He has also served on various boards and state organizations in the private sector of Trinidad and Tobago and in Guyana. And um, some of his recent assignments are, include serving as chairman in the establishment of um, initial, initial operations of telecommunications authority of Trinidad and Tobago and in the Heritage and Stabilization Fund of Trinidad and Tobago. And so thank you very much, Dr. Henry, for joining us today. And I hand it over to you. Thank, thank you, Valerie. And uh, it's indeed a pleasure to have been able to cooperate with you in this project. Um, I want to start my presentation by complimenting Valerie and the team for an excellent situation analysis on migration, integration, and diaspora engagement in the Caribbean. It is, a, it is a comprehensive report. And of course, it's timely as this region, the entire region is in the throes of the post-COVID-19 adjustment and a point of inflection in the international economy in which global value chains have been fractured and countries which are the main destination of Caribbean exports and sources of foreign exchange and tourists are adjusting to major changes, including adjustment to a major war in Europe. I see this report as treating with two migratory flows in the region, the intra-regional flow, of which we were not as much as, as sensitive to as, it, as we ought to be, and the extra-regional flow. 
In respect of the first, the intra-regional flow, the analysis treats with three triggers to movement. Firstly, the comparative economic conditions that drive people to seek opportunity in another Caribbean country, the labor migration issue, the refugee issue, people moving following political and insecurity problems in their countries of origin. And we see more recently the, the Venezuelan crisis, how that has played out in countries like Trinidad and Suriname and Guyana. And then of course, there's a climate change and natural disaster problem. The analysis treats in great depth too with the institutional and governance issues in the receiving or destination countries in the region and to the extent to which they are accommodating of migrants from neighboring countries. The report examines the rights accorded to such migrants in respect of the, of the length of stay once admitted and such other rights as protection of as workers, access to education, to health, social services, and social integration. We see here that there's a wide array of protocols among countries in the Anglophone Caribbean, notwithstanding the fact that much of the legal framework derives from the British system of laws, which of course all colonies, post colonies of, 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 of Britain. And even though they're all members of CARICOM and the CSME, I myself was indeed surprised by the major differences among member states, notwithstanding the fact that there is some sense of a common approach among the countries that are members of the organization of Eastern Caribbean states. In respect of the extra-regional flow, the report provides recent data on remittances and the contribution to GDP of some of these countries, with Jamaica in the lead with 25% of GDP being uh, amassed through, through, through remittances, followed by Haiti with 19%. I found it interesting that the intra-regional flows have in more recent times surpassed the extra-regional flows to the USA, Canada, and, Canada and, and, and the UK in the Anglophone countries. It seems to me that what we are treating with here is an excess labor problem in which poor economic conditions have driven low-level labor mainly to seek opportunity in neighboring countries, entering on jobs that locals may loathe to do at existing wages, while at the higher level, technical, professional personnel seek a future in the metropolitan north. So you have uh, a sort of bifurcation in the, in, the, in, the, in the flows, people seeking low level jobs to ease their condition if they cannot, if they're not with their skills or their technical training that allow them to to be admitted more readily to the, the metropolitan north. Um, they seek support, sustenance in neighboring countries within the region, while at the higher level, um, some of them seek jobs abroad in the metropolitan north. Some, of course, do target employment in high-level occupations 
in the quickly growing regional economies, especially in the tourism-driven economies in competition with high-level personnel from the North. At the end of the day, what we're seeing is movement of people previously to the North mainly, but now in the more recent years, to the, within the region, as people seek to, to mitigate their difficult circumstances in their countries of origin. I agree with all of the recommendations, but I would want to stress um, two areas that I think um, follows naturally from this report. And I, I don't know to what extent the IDB can be helpful in getting Caribbean countries to, to, to raise the bar in respect of the, this Caribbean migration consultation that has been established. Its status needs to be raised beyond, beyond a, a forum because it is, it is within such an organization that countries can seek to develop some coherence in their treatment of their neighbors, cognizant of the fact that conditions are largely the same within the member states. We are all in a Caribbean sea facing climate change and facing situations where there can be a sudden collapse of foreign exchange earnings from one or two, one to three sectors that are responsible for the level of competitiveness that might allow countries to earn the vital foreign exchange to support necessary imports. So that there's really need for us to have some consistency right across the board in the treatment of, of intra-regional migration, because it's, it's a problem that applies across all the countries. And what might be, what might be a challenging times for one country at a particular stage in its development might change the, you know, under conditions of improved exports might change as, as you see, for example, in the case of Guyana, Guyana is, is enjoying a far, far more buoyant economy, economic circumstances. And one would expect that flows intra-regionally would be more directed at Guyana in the future. But Guyana previously was a country from which people were, were, were migrating in large numbers intra-regionally. So that all of us uh, as countries of the region need to see that improved circumstances today does not uh, review of the, of the requirement to look at you know, the uh, migration flows from other countries, as well as what might be a situation down the road where your own country might have difficult, might find itself in difficult circumstances with large numbers of people leaving. So that the issue here is raising the status of this Caribbean migration consultation, which is a sort of forum, but it needs to be seen in a much uh, a, a larger context going forward. Also, to, I, I want to emphasize that um, given that such a large proportion of, of uh, populations abroad now are in neighboring countries, clearly um, 
these migratory flows intra-regionally must be of, of importance in any discussion within CARICOM and within the Caribbean states as we address this Caribbean migration consultation. I fully support the recommendations on the, on the use of remittances and engaging the diaspora in greater agency in the development of the region and in home countries through targeted investments in SMEs, human resource development, and what I call the redraining of brains by returning nationals, even for short stints, working back home in, in one's country, those who are, who, who are trained to high levels in, in, in different professions, but also through working virtually because the, the technology today allows country people to remain in their new countries of residence and to contribute working with people back home virtually in, in, in businesses and, and research, et cetera, in, in countries at home. So that, 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 would be, that would be an important area, I think, in our uh, availing ourselves of the opportunities um, beyond just the use of remittances in having such a large number of the professional and high-level technical people who are resident abroad. It means, therefore, that we can look at migration. And of course, the people who are resident abroad uh, need not be returning simply to their home country, but, but rather to the region. And in fact, um, I have long um, recommended that the, at the CARICOM Secretariat, that they should see, the Secretariat itself should see itself as, as a repository of information as to the technical skills and professional competence of people who are, the large numbers of or people who are in the diaspora and who may, whose services may be needed back in one or other country in, in the region as we look back into the, as we look forward to the development of this region. That's all I would want to contribute that, but again, I want to compliment Battery and the team for a very, uh, a most important um, report uh, that has provided us with, with information that, you know, is, has not been available in one place. It, it now is something that the IDB and the CARICOM Secretariat, as well as the countries can work with in ensuring that our, our migration flows can be can be orderly, can be more ordered, and we can take very full advantage of the, the fact that people do indeed have to move in order to contribute to their own upkeep, but also to the development of the, the, the countries of the region. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Henry. Um, that was fabulous, and we really appreciate all the work you've done through the years um, on migration, as well as many other issues in the Caribbean, and it's an honor to have you with us uh, today for this conversation. Um, I want to congratulate Valerie and her co-authors on this report um, and thank Felipe Munoz um, for, and the IDB for their collaboration in this, for the opportunity to work together and for uh, diving into this research together. And it's one of many things, as Felipe noted, that, that we're working on together. And I, I can never be on a panel with, with Felipe without, um, without saying that he's not only a great you know, thinker on these issues and someone who's active through the bank, but he also brings the credibility of someone who was the migration czar, the leader of the 
migration policy in Colombia during the time of one of the largest displacement flows. Um, and so he knows of what he speaks when he, when he talks about migration and the fact that countries can be resilient and, and respond with their migration policies to changing circumstances. Um, let me just point out, we're going to go to Q&A very quickly because I know there's a lot of questions and answers and there is a, um, there is a Q, if you haven't found it yet, you will find either on the top or the bottom a, a Q&A button and you can type in your questions. We already have quite a few, but let me just highlight maybe three or four things that, that you've heard already. You know, one reason this report is so important is there really is nothing else out there that is current um, that tells us where Caribbean countries are in their migration policies. And there's actually quite a lot going on. Um, there are pieces on individual countries, of course, but, but really trying to look broadly across uh, all the countries in the region is something that Valerie and her collaborators were doing. And, and it's a really important exercise. And I think, you know, uh, uh, from the MPI perspective, from Migration Policy Institute, I would say we think it's particularly important that we understand that, you know, so much of the literature on migration policies come from Europe and North America and understand that, in fact, the countries of the Caribbean and Latin America have a long history of migration policies as well. Important to understand these. One of the things that comes out is there's actually a great deal of innovation going on. And we see this particularly. Um, in the, the regional mobility agreements that are tied to other integration processes, but we also see it in the de facto responses to some of the crises that happen, particularly the climate crises, where countries have been quite flexible and resilient and creative in their responses. And at the same time, the report does highlight many of the challenges that exist, the, the fact that there is a need to think more intentionally about immigration policies. You know, you've seen the numbers that, that Valerie put up. And, and simply how much countries are influenced by immigration in the Caribbean. Um, and then if we're to think intentionally about what these policies should look like in the future, to think about protection policies, humanitarian protection and asylum. This is a, a, an area that is not as developed in many of the countries in the Caribbean. Um, and thinking about integration and thinking about the relationship with the diaspora, which is very important for, for a number of the countries as well. And finally, I would say, say the whole issue of climate change is something that is talked about a lot in the relationship between climate change and migration. But there are a few places in the world that are as influenced by climate and where it's likely to have an impact one way or another um, on migration patterns in the Caribbean. And this is an area that, that certainly needs um, a lot more research and a lot more understanding. And this report opens up so that conversation as well. And so with that, let's go to the questions. I'm going to read a few questions and we'll go back to Dr. LeCarte and Dr. Henry. Um, and also if Felipe wants to jump in on these. Um, there were two questions that are sort of polar opposites. And so I'll read them together. I'll paraphrase them. I'm going to paraphrase questions. One is, you know, the advantages of migration to the Caribbean. Talk a little bit about what are the advantages of migration, why countries should care about this in a proactive way, um, and how it fits into to thinking of their economic future. Um, and there's another question, sort of the polar opposite, but related, which is also that there's fragility in some of these states. And so also, are there challenges to the fragility of some of these countries in not managing immigration well? So that was one. There's another question, I'll give you three or four together. Um, in, in the numbers of nationals from the United Kingdom, the US and Canada, how many of those people are return migrants? Are people perhaps born in the Caribbean who are now citizens of other countries or children of, of people who were born in the Caribbean? Um, Maybe to say something about asylum systems, uh, someone pointed out that, that there did not seem to be a large number of refugees in the Caribbean. What does that say about the, the refugee systems and the asylum systems 
And finally, will there be updated data down the road? Because COVID has, has of course, reshaped mobility around the world in many ways. Although we are seeing in many places also that patterns of mobility are returning to what they were. There are some changes, but, but surprisingly, in many cases, there's also continuity. I'll just point that out. So go back to, I guess, Valerie, do you want to start? And maybe go to Dr. Henry as well. Dr. Lockhart. Sure, I can tackle some of these questions. Um, when it comes to um, refugee, the question of re refugee systems and asylum systems, um, you will see in the report um, that, as we said in the presentation, there are few institutions. So most of the countries have ratified the um, you the the um, most of the countries the have ratified the, the UN Refugee Convention, thank you, in 51, and also the 1967 protocol. But there's a lack of implementation or of the systems to actually um, sustain uh, those commitments. Uh, in the report, we pointed to Belize and the Dominican Republic that do have full asylum systems uh, in place or procedures and institutions in place to deal with humanitarian protection. Those systems are tested. Uh, they are, as we saw in the data as well, uh, these are two countries that do receive a lot of migrants who are likely in need of that humanitarian protection, but um, they are the two countries that we flag that have those. Uh, the now UN, the agencies and the international organizations that work in these areas have do support uh, these countries, even, even if they don't have other countries to even if they don't have full uh, in systems to um, address humanitarian protections, there are on the ground, there are different mechanisms in order to um, work on refugee designation, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the most of the systems are lacking the capacity or to, to fully implement those commitments. Um, I'll stop there. Maybe we can tackle some of the other questions, but. Uh, Dr. Henry. I think you're on mute, Dr. Henry. Yeah, yes. Yeah. No. I, I would add, in respect of that matter of the returning, whether the, the people return, going back or going to the, from, from the North to the Caribbean, in, from the USA, from Canada, United Kingdom, whether they are returning nationals, I think not. It's usually high level jobs that you have in some of these countries that are where um, the, the you know the, the nationals from these from the U.S., Canada, and U.K. may actually have a, have a premium actually in in securing these these high level positions. And in fact, in a country like the Turks and Caicos, um, the the Turks and Caicos Islanders feel themselves swamped, um, and they feel that they're the cheese between you know in between that the the low level jobs are held by largely Haitians and people from the Dominican Republic. And the high level jobs are held by people coming in from the North. Um, so that it's, 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 but you do find within the Caribbean, there's some people from within the Caribbean who go at these high level jobs in Turks and Caicos and Gaiman Islands and such other tourism dominated economies. On the matter of the fragility of states, 
I think all our states are indeed fragile, um, uh, both in the economic terms, but also, of course, in, in terms of the, of the climate, uh, that nowhere is immune from, the, from, from disaster, as we now see across this region, so that at any point in time, we can have a serious hurricane, um, we've had volcano, volcanic eruptions and so on, and how that has unsettled people. But then there's a fragility in terms of the, 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 the reliance on just of one or two sectors to earn foreign exchange. And you, you, you know, tourism, for example, is highly vulnerable. If you, know, you see a, um, crime in some places that leads to uh, travel advisories, et cetera, and that, what that does to your tourism, your tourism sector. Um, the traditional exports, of course, have, have, have disappeared, bananas and sugarcane, et cetera. So that, you know, it's one or two sectors that, that, that provide a foreign exchange. And if there's anything in that market that you can find that there's a collapse of government revenue, the capacity of the government to run the public sector and so on and so on and so forth. So that fragility, if one checks the level of indebtedness of Caribbean countries, we are not only most vulnerable, but we are also an area that is most highly indebted. With debt to GDP of over um, 100 percent in some cases, and of course the COVID made things even worse. So that fragility seen in those terms suggests that you know this is a highly vulnerable and fragile region. And and Andrew, if if I can just jump in to answer some of the other questions. Uh, on the question of the benefits, right, of migration and of managing migration, I mean, there's there's a range of, you know, there's a lot of literature on that more globally, but I would just say that the reality in the Caribbean and by speaking with experts and such is that those changes are happening independently of whether the migration is managed or not, right? So the question really, in a way, is not like, should we you know, what are the benefits? The question is right now it's happening, the trends are there, it's clear. And so are you, are we going to manage it? Is the, what are the mechanisms to better manage it? But the flow in itself and the, the changes that are happening in the societies and the, 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 the way that, uh, that migrants integrate, which will happen over time, the, the question is how is it going to happen and whether there will be direct management and involvement in that process. And then just a quick answer on the data, as I said, that's one of the first limitations is the fact that it has changed so much, especially since COVID. That's a great point, of course, is 2020 data, but um, we do have good information and references in the report that you can go back to and keep up to date to see when new data is released. Um, and, and again, this is to start the conversation, really, this report is really to to have everything in one document and then see what else we can do together on, on this topic. Um, we're gonna go five minutes over. Uh, we're gonna try not go further than that, but there are so many questions. By the way, we really appreciate that. I think there's 32 questions. I apologize ahead of time. We're not gonna to get to most of them, um, but some of them do overlap. And so I hope I'm folding them in together. Um, I'm gonna give you both a, a final chance to respond and then maybe turn to Felipe for, for some closing to closing remark if he wants to add anything else. So let me, let me give you two questions. What are actionable steps 
on social integration, on social cohesion, knowing that these are increasingly diverse societies. Caribbean societies have always been diverse to begin with, but knowing that they're increasingly diverse because of migration, um, current migration, what are actionable steps to promote social cohesion um, that should fall, that uh, should come out of this? And what about skills recognition? To what extent is skills recognition key going forward in terms of mobility within the Caribbean basin, particularly in intra, in terms of intra-Caribbean uh, migration. So Valerie, let's go to you first. Okay, um, great questions. Uh, social cohesion, I would say some of the first actionable steps is to gather information on the immigrant populations that are in the respective countries. It sounds uh, like very basic, but it's actually very important, especially in the Caribbean where a lot of the countries beyond the ones that we studied uh, don't have great information on who uh, is in the country. So not only the numbers, the, the statuses that they're in, what are their, um, their levels of skills and their needs and how there could be, what is the, um, how does that line up with the national priorities? How do we make sure that we can in integrate uh, these immigrant populations? Uh, a lot of the data that was communicated obviously is on what we could capture, but we know that there's a significant level of uh, irregular migration in some of these countries. There's, there's some information on that in the report, but um, there, if integration and social cohesion is, uh, is truly an objective that is embraced, it does require understanding the needs of these populations. And it is linked to skills recognition as well. Um, there, there, is, there are skills recognition systems that are in place through the CSME and that are rigorous and that have very specific steps and processes. So there's already a map out there on what to do and how it could be um, better, how it could be improved in order to uh, ensure that there isn't this uneven implementation across the region. Um, we talk in the report about Haitian nationals in particular that have uh, that don't have the same access in some of those countries that, uh, that are members of the CSME. And so there's already an infrastructure there to build on and to expand. I'll stop there. Henry? Uh, Thank you, Valerie. Dr. Henry. Yes, very quickly. Yes, I just want to support that point made by Valerie about skills recognition. There. The, the educational system is, at least in the Anglophone area, is more or less similar right across the board. So that there's, to the extent that people acquire skills and acquire ed educational certificates, they recognize, in fact, there's the Caribbean Examinations Council, the, the CDQU is also a Caribbean certificate. So that in terms of skills recognition, there isn't a problem. Where there is a problem, however, is in, the actionable steps that might be taken to, 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 to promote cohesion. And I think the, the governments have to recognize a, a responsibility to help the domestic populations to understand that the neighbors, the neighbors next door are all, we're all the same people. We all, you know, the, 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 the percentage of the first people in the, in the, in the entire region is, very small, so that we are all trans transplanted people who have come here out of the, that whole colonial um, ex exploitation of Europe 
in of the Caribbean. And the, the, the where you land up is really a function of where the where the sea can be made of, of slaves two or three centuries ago. So that there's need for that promotion of a CARICOM. And I know that the, at the level of the CARICOM secretariat, and I suppose as one expands CARICOM to include the Haiti, et cetera, that there's that building of the Caribbean person where people recognize their, their Caribbean-ness and therefore there's a need for a sort of brotherliness and sisterhood across the region. It's, it happens when people go abroad and they realize, well, we are, we are from the Caribbean, we're from different countries, but we, we are Caribbean nationals. That, that sense of being Caribbean has to, be, has to become resident in the minds and feelings of people in the Caribbean itself. Thank you, Dr. Henry. Felipe, you, you, you have really been in the middle of this. I mean, what do countries have to gain from managing migration well? You know, is there an upside in this or is it just managing a bad hand that they're being dealt? No, I think there is a lot of space for improving so many things in the, in the institutions and also in the Caribbean interactions. And this is like a first step. This is just a tool for continue. Uh, going deeper in so many of the topics that have been arising, not only in the presentation, but also in the question. I think for so many of the Caribbeans, for example, uh, regarding social cohesion in our laboratory of public perception of migration with uh, the links in the chat, we found that the xenophobic sentiments are lower in the Caribbean in comparison with other regions. Then we have we have we have place to go, we have place to start. And we have, we as a bank, you as an MPI, we have so many other institutions that we want to work together more deeply with all the Caribbean governments to really take advantage of the migration, which is not only is in place right now, as, as Valerie said, but it's but but it's going to continue. And and thank you very much for, for your time and for everyone has has been. Thank you everybody for joining us. Um, there was a question also about uh, uh, you know, other materials on the rest of the region. If you look at the IDB migration website, you'll see a lot of materials. You'll see a study coming out very soon on Latin, we'll see a short study on Latin American Caribbean response to migration from MPI, as well as a very specific one on the country by country response to Venezuelan displacement, as well as many other things. So I mean, I would encourage you, and I would look also, there's a number of good uh, pieces coming out from academics, from scholars in Latin America and the Caribbean as well on these issues. I think we're really at the beginning of seeing, uh, trying to understand how countries are responding to migration flows, how they're responding to protection needs, how they're responding to, um, to social integration at a new moment where we're dealing with different kinds of diversity brought on by migration that are layered on top of other forms of diversity that have already been there. And also look at some of the drivers, right? And I think we, we're all concerned about the effects of climate change, we're, we're concerned about, about questions of citizen security, other things that are driving people to think about, about moving. And that's particularly important in this region as well. Clearly, as Valerie said earlier, you know, this migration is uh, unexpected. Some of it is intentional. Countries actually do try and attract migrants. Um, certain kinds of migrants, as well as, as the diaspora to stay engaged. Others arrive surprisingly. Um, but the reality is if countries try and manage migration, try and think of how to protect people in their countries, try and fit this into national interest and national values, 
there is a very good chance that this will become an anchor in, in the future of countries in the region. And this is true around the world, but you know, this is our conversation about the Caribbean. So is it particularly true, you know, in, in what Dr. Henry referred to as sort of fraternity and, and sisterhood in the in the Caribbean, which, which it has long dealt with mobility, where there's a long history of mobility and indeed of, of, of tolerance and inclusion. So thank you very much everyone for joining us and have a great evening.